0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. Outdoor Edge knows that providing a freezer full of meat is part of the reason we all hunt. And what better way to bring it full circle than to process your own wild game? Outdoor Edge provides a full lineup of traditional and replaceable blade hunting knives and complete wild game processing kits to bring your wild game from the field to the freezer. Visit OutdoorEdge.com and at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30 for 30% off. Transform the way you hunt with the all-new base Cellular Trail Camera connected by the Moultrie mobile app. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The feed hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com.
1: All right, guys, welcome to today's show, and joining me on the show today... I've got Stephen Walker. Now, Stephen is a father, a husband, a pastor, a crazy shed hunter, and Western big game hunter. And so I'm really excited to pick his brain as another person who had moved from um, actually the south down in Louisiana out to the west, and now he pursues all sorts of animals everywhere in between. But it's going to be a good episode because we've got season coming up very quickly and i'm just getting fired up in fact tomorrow hopefully tomorrow i'll be heading out to wyoming sorry i don't know why i said wyoming montana and then utah for my first big hunt of the year and anyways yeah it's just gonna be a fun time chatting with him and hearing all about western hunting so let's jump into this episode with steven
0: I don't know what to expect.
2: If there's anybody I want in the woods with me, it'll be you.
1: All right, guys, welcome to today's show and joining me on the show today, I've got Steven Walker. Now Steven is a transplant from Louisiana out to the great state of Colorado. And if you know anything about the West, I mean, you know, it's just gorgeous. There's so many hunting opportunities out there, big game, beautiful scenery. And so I'm excited to chat with Steven and see what that's looked like ever since he's moved out there. So, Steven, thanks for hopping on, man.
2: Thank you, Dan. Appreciate you having me on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Why don't we start out like this? Before we jump into the conversation, get into all the stories, uh, why don't you share a little bit about your hunting history with the listeners, kind of what you grew up doing, what brought you out to Colorado and why you love it out there so much?
2: Well, so my first hunting experience, uh, my dad raised me and my brother hunting with dogs, uh, hunting wild hogs in Louisiana. So that was my very first hunting experience ever. Uh, my dad loved hunting with dogs and that was kind of his niche. And so, um, I learned a lot, a lot about tracking, a lot about that sort of thing from him and then about. I think I was 12 years old, uh, me and my brother, we started really hitting my dad up about taking us deer hunting. And so uh, dad put us in a safety course. We both got our uh, safety course certification. And uh, he took us that year. And both me and my brother killed our first whitetail deer that year. And then that just opened up this, you know, whole world of, we got so involved in whitetail hunting, and by the time I think I would have been about fifteen, um my brother would have been thirteen or so. We both got just some old bows that someone had gave us or something, and we started uh we started bow hunting a little bit, <laughs> and it was it was quite hilarious. I can tell you that, because um those old bows shot so slow. <laughs> that those whitetails would jump the air a lot of times, but we were just happy to be out there chasing them. And then, um, uh, probably about early twenties, 24. Or so got into Turkey hunting, done that for ever since then. But then about 2008, 2009, me and a, a really good friend that I'd grown up with Cade Mitchell, uh, he, he said, man, why don't you and I plan a trip to Colorado? Let's go elk hunting. And so, man, that was the beginning of falling in love with the West for sure. And, uh, I remember Dan, that first year that we came, I literally, and this is, this is the truth. I literally saw one elk, the whole hunt. It was a five by five bull. I got him to like 75 yards. And uh, just couldn't, wasn't comfortable with a shot, but only seeing that one elk while we were hunting, just, I mean, lit a fire in me um, to chase an elk in the West. And so, over the next few years, we chased elk. I, um, I shot one, I think, the third year, maybe that I had come and lost him. And so it was 2012 before I actually killed my first bull with a bow. And uh, I killed a six by six. He scored like 308 inches. And to me, that was just, you know, huge trophy. I, I have him on the wall right now. So, yeah, that's um, an amazing first bull. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and like I said, it took four years to to finally kill one but it was all worth it you know i was determined i'd started out bow hunting for L, and i wasn't going to switch to a rifle until i had killed one with a bow
1: yeah i feel like it is it's interesting when you get into a certain type of hunting with a weapon you know whether it's a bow or a gun it's easy to get stuck in that you know like for me I, i said the same thing like i'm gonna Well, I started out saying, I'm going to figure this thing out with my rifle because I was looking just at the uh, success rates and it was something like 3% success rate with a bow. And I was like, okay, well, first of all, that means one out of 33 hunts ends up with a bull. Right. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, I don't I don't have that much vacation time to go out 33 times. I'm like, okay, so maybe in the next five years, I'll shoot one. I was like, no, I want to get out there and figure it out with the rifle. I can extend my range, obviously, with the rifle. And sure. I knew people that were already going out. And so I was like, all right, this is a no-brainer. I'm going to put my time in with this, and then I'm going to switch to my bow. Well, the problem became we've had so much success with rifles and it's been so amazing. And I love the group of guys that I go out with. Like it's a huge group and they get, Oh, believe me, they get rowdy. They get crazy, (laughs) but I have so much fun. I look forward to it every October going out and hanging out with them for nine, 10, 11 days, depending on how, how early or how late we stay. And I'm like, it's going to be tough to give that up now because we've built such a tradition and such good camaraderie out there that to switch over just to chase him with my bow would be difficult. And so now I'm like, okay, how do I go about transitioning? Do I start out in a different state? Do I only maybe cow hunt when I go for second rifle season? Uh, what, how do I make that change into
2: the archery world? And you know what, that might be a great idea, Dan, is, you know, if, if there's a cow hunt available with that same unit with your, same group of guys then you could you know have the experience of an archery hunt and then still because i understand the camaraderie is is so much of what it is with any kind of hunting but especially out west yeah i mean it really is
1: yeah what is a uh, what does that look like for you now out west um do, does your buddy still come out there and hunt now that you live there, or did he move out there as well, or what does your uh, elk camp look like?
2: So, so, uh, Kade, my buddy that we've started hunting together, he he's super busy. He's in the uh, uh oil industry, and so over the last few years, he has been super super busy. Matter of fact, this year he's not even getting to come at all. So he's had to really just take. Just when he can grab a few days and come out, and over the last probably three or four years, him and I have not even got to hunt together because of how his schedule is and whatever. Um. So, right now, um, me, my son, and my son's father-in-law, um, uh, that's pretty much our elk camp. We we have a uh, a camp that is. About ten miles in from the end of a national forest road, that we uh, pack up the mules and we we pack in there. And um, our our success. It's it's funny that you mentioned the success rate because man, it's so discouraging if if you look overall. I I, I saw um just the other day uh, there was a study that came out. I think it was from twenty nineteen, but there was two hundred eighty three thousand elk is what they say we have in Colorado. And the CPW is selling 220,000 tags a year. <laughs> they're making they're making somewhere around 40 million a year off of tag fees. Oh my goodness. And and the the success rate across all manners of tape, rifle, archery, etc is only at 17% across all manners of take. And so the one thing that I learned from being here is pretty much to be successful, you have to put in more time, more effort than most everybody else if you're going to be successful. And so we go 10 miles back. That puts us pretty much away from most of the crowds. You know, we'll have one or two now and again, but it's amazing just going from like the end of the road and, and the, the number of bugles you'll hear there. And then you go 10 miles in and the difference it is because of pressure. Yeah. I mean, it is an amazing difference.
1: So when you're doing that ten miles, are you are you packing everything in? Are you hiking? Yeah. Are you doing
2: horse mule? So we've got mules. We pack everything on the mules, and um, and then we we lead the mules in. Okay. So mm-hmm.
1: I'm guessing you're doing some type of wall tent setup, or you know, setting up a base camp back there. And then uh, once you have camp set up, are you hunting by foot? Uh, are you just kind of hiking from place to place or are you, uh, loading up on the mules every day and, and trying to find the elk?
2: Once we get to camp, um, we are, we are just hiking from there and hunting from there. Okay. Uh, we have a 12 by 12 wall tent that we take in there. It's, it's small enough. We can pack it still big enough that three guys can be in it, you know, with our cots and be comfortable. Um, but man, we're, we're super fortunate because this area, uh, my son's father-in-law, he, he literally has been hunting this area since the sixties. And Dang, that's, sweet. and so <laughs> he, he knows this place, you know, I mean, so well. And, um, so it has a lot of sentimental value to him and then he's passed that on to us over the last uh eight or ten years yeah
1: what uh what is the success rate looked like uh how has that changed for you guys from the time you first came out and you know like you said it was four years before you got your first elk uh to now i mean are you guys bringing elk elk meat home or bringing a bull home
2: every season or multiple? So, so I'll just tell you this, my first three years, I was doing like everyone else and trying to just hike way, way back and hunt. My fourth year, my son's father-in-law, uh, Todd Wilson, invited me to come back here to this camp and I killed my first bull. Jeez. And ever since then, um, we have someone in the family has at least taken the milk out of there pretty much every year um we had our best year in 2020 um i had a muzzle loading tag my son had a archery tag and todd wilson had a first rifle tag and we filled all three tags jeez
1: that is an impressive feat i mean so it it was awesome so really you guys are the reason the uh annual percentage or the percentage rate for harvest is even at 17 without people like you (laughs) we might be in the single
2: digits (laughs) well you know this this is it's really a huge um opportunity to 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 know someone who who has that kind of experience you know in this area for so many years that's that. Like, gives you a huge leg up, you know. Um, oh yeah, put you ahead of everybody else. And and you know, we've been able to go back there. We've been able to get away from the majority of the hunting pressure. Um, now I will say this, and I love I love Onyx Hunt Map. I use it all the time. Yeah. But one thing that hunting maps has done, ha- it, it has put more people in those backcountry areas. And like we're seeing people that just um they like picked a spot on a on onyx and and like, man, this ridge looks like it should be really good. And they'll they'll hike and they'll spend, I mean, they put in the effort. They'll spend days and they'll just hike through there. And last year we had a couple of guys that had never been in the area before but just found it on on x and hiked in and not knowing the area they set up their tent and camped in the in one of our best bedding grounds oh no (laughs) and so so saturday morning we had bulls going crazy bugling everywhere and by saturday evening in our canyon and the next canyon over they had pushed all the elk out oh my goodness that would be so
1: heartbreaking. And that's a that's a difficult spot to be in as somebody who's been there. And, I mean, you're part of a, a party that, you know, he's been hunting there for 50, 60 years. And yeah. it's like, how, how do you go about saying, hey, we hunt here every year. This is a really good spot for elk. Don't camp right there. You know, because then they're going to be like, oh, shoot, we're in the right spot. Like, we need to come back year after year we won't camp in this yeah. valley but obviously if they keep coming back for decades there's something yeah. to it you know you don't want to give away that it's that good of a spot but also like hey you really can't camp there it's
2: going to ruin all of the hunting <laughs> well i must say we were tempted to uh to make a little sign and and put it put it where they camp and just you know, kind of fill them in with at least. Hey, guys, this is a, this is one of the elk's favorite batting grounds, and if you just wouldn't camp here, it would help everybody. You know, yeah, because I and I understand because I was that I was that guy that came from Louisiana for for years, and I was just trying to find a great place to hunt, and and I was willing to put in. You know, we were putting in, me and my buddy Cade were putting in fifteen. Sometimes 18 miles a day, just trying to get further than everybody. Yeah. You know. And so I, I and you've probably done the same thing. Uh we just we were trying to put in the effort. Um, and these guys were doing the same thing. You know, they didn't mean to they didn't mean to mess us up or whatever. But the fact of the matter is, is Saturday evening when they when they blew all the elk out, it was um I think it was Wednesday uh, before we heard a confirmed bugle again in those two canyons.
1: Jeez. Yeah, that is, that's wild. And it's crazy to think, like, in my mind, going out to Colorado, it's like when I whitetail hunt in the Midwest or go up to Wisconsin, like you blow a deer out of an area and there's going to be more deer right back in it, you know, maybe hours later, no big deal. There's animals everywhere. Well, with elk, I remember my first year hunting, we were, we were sitting there watching the, all these elk. And we were kind of on, we were about, I don't know, 400, 500 yards from the property line between public and private. And these mm-hmm. elk were just barely inside the private or inside the public land line. And so we're like, all right, how do we go about this? How do we make a play on these? Do we try to shoot one? It's really steep terrain. And as we're trying to figure all this out, a couple people came from private onto public oh, no. and pushed the elk back out back onto their side. And I'm like, man, that sucks. Like, you guys have tens of thousands of acres of private <laughs> land to hunt, and you're coming and in intentionally scaring elk away when you see somebody come and, you know, trying to make a play on them. And I, I thought yeah. it was kind of shady, but anyways, that wasn't the point of the story. The point of the story was the when I watched those elk get blown out of there, we watched them for well over a mile. I mean, I'm talking 70-plus elk that ran oh my full speed, it seemed like, the entire time, all the way across this valley on private land, up into an opposing mountainside, and they were gone. And I remember sitting there thinking those elk might not be back for weeks. Like, they just, they ran out of here like they never wanted to be in this spot again. Whereas, like, a deer, you know, you might see a deer run off, and it runs to 200 yards, and then it stops and turns around and looks back and might even start feeding once it gets far enough away.
0: These mm-hmm. elk,
1: the, just the way that they ran and the speed that they ran at and how much ground and the type of terrain they could cover in that short amount of time, It really concerned me and i was like man right this is a whole different ball game because you know we've got a nine day second season hunt and if you blow elk out like that on day three or four there's a good chance none of those elk are coming back before your season's over not to mention they're herd animals you know like a whitetail you blow a big buck out well there might be another big buck just on the other side of the woodlot with elk typically most of them are together and you might find small pockets here and there, but like to take 75 elk out of the equation, just like that from one mistake, that could, that could be detrimental to your hunting success.
2: Oh, for sure. No doubt about it. I mean, and, and you know this from being out here, the hunting seasons are, are so, you know, there's only, there are only a few days according to which season you hunt. Um, You know, I think muzzleloaders nine, um, I think second season might be nine, seven or nine, but man, when you, when something like that happens, I mean, your whole hunt can be blown by that one instance. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Especially, I mean, like in, in your guys's case where you've been figuring out this one area or, you know, your son's father-in-law has been figuring out this area for decades, and it's like, this is where I go. If I know I need to get one, if I know, like, I'm going to shoot one, it's going to be down somewhere along this bedding area. You know, you're catching them going from or coming back to the bedding. And yeah and then all of a sudden, you're number one go-to, like, not even a <laughs> Hail Mary, almost a surefire spot, no longer has elk in it. Yeah, that's yeah, that's, that's wild. We... We've experienced some stuff like that even with deer hunting because typically the hardwoods will hold deer really well after the corn and the beans and the crops are cut well there's been a couple years and this wasn't even that long ago probably in the last five or six seasons that there were a couple years where it was so wet that the farmers couldn't take the corn down and so i'd go up for Mm. thanksgiving for rifle season and the corn's still standing well When I say we have success, me and my family, we hunt like a 40 acre chunk and we had as many as like 11 or 12 people hunting this. And it's weird. You would think it's so overcrowded. It'd be impossible to fit that many people in 40 acres, but the terrain, the hills, the thick woods, it, it really feels like you're all alone out there. Well, we've gone out there and we've had years where we're shooting six or seven deer on opening weekend and that's amazing like i don't i don't remember a single time that we've gone even the full first day without shooting something and all of a sudden we had these wet years where the crops didn't come down and nobody was seeing deer i mean i think all combined the whole group saw like five or six deer on opening day and i'm like there's been days where i've sat there and seen 45 50 deer opening day just by myself And so it's crazy once you like take certain things or like add certain things to the equation, like a new food source or a change in bedding or somebody, maybe the neighbor comes and logs his property, how quickly things can change. And then to think it doesn't even have to be something that extreme or that big of an event. It could just be the wrong guy camping at the wrong spot out west. It does the exact same
2: thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's so true, man. And you know, we we're fortunate. I I have a lot of um, uh, my kin folks from Georgia, and me and my cousin Huey, um, we we've been hunting together. we've been hunting whitetails together for years. And so, kind of like your family land, we have we we're blessed with a little bit more access there. I think all total, we have close to three hundred acres, and nice. um, we'll have we all go and meet up it's kind of like our thanksgiving hunt but we do it early november and um man we'll have we'll have sometimes eight to ten or twelve of us hunting at the same time and we've been so fortunate it's not like we've got tons of just giant bucks but we've got some great bucks i mean i've killed 145 class deer you know there Dang, yeah and um uh, but we we are very careful, and I know you guys do this. This is one thing I love about whitetail hunters is even when we all come out west, we're all careful about you know scent and and the wind and those things you know. And uh, so I always love I always love hunting with guys who who have been whitetail hunters. But um, our success rate has been great there, and we usually end up killing. A couple of mounters a year off of nice. that place.
1: That's awesome. It's th- there's just something about that, like tradition. You know, you go back year after year. Everyone's there. Everyone's remembering the stories from. You know, man, remember back in 2011 when we saw that giant. <laughs> and nobody actually connected <laughs> with it. Like, yeah, I I can't get past that side of it. And there's there's some of those guys that will go out and do the solo hunt deal. You know, they'll go way out in the backcountry all by themselves. I know people like that personally. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I can't imagine doing all of that and not having anybody that you can be like, hey, remember this? Yeah. "Uh, Nope, we don't. We only know from your story (laughs) and we can't even confirm it. Like, wait, did you really
2: see that big of a bull? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. But I well what's that what's that that randy newberg i think he always says if it's not videoed it's not
1: true yeah exactly (laughs) if there's no pictures of it it didn't actually happen
2: right right
1: yeah that's it's funny because that's the first thing that me and my buddies always say like if someone's like dude just shot a big one it's like picture it didn't happen and (laughs) immediately everyone's scrambling to send the pictures out uh but no it's <laughs> it's a good it. time so you guys i mean your season's coming up pretty quick then
2: yeah so we we're we actually have a pretty full season um um my son's archery tag starts uh september 2nd um and then i have a muzzleloader tag starting september 10th and then um todd wilson has he's been putting in for like 12 or 14 years for an antelope tag here in, um, Southern Colorado. And that one starts October 1st. And, um, and then we have, uh, I'll be leaving the end of October head to Georgia to whitetail hunt. So it's pretty, it's, we, we, we're pretty, pretty booked up for the year. Um, and then I don't know. Have you ever chased coos deer in like Arizona? No, I haven't. But I keep oh. hearing about it. And bro, look, let me tell you something. <laughs> Being a whitetail hunter, you got to put it on your bucket list. Okay. So, so I I was fortunate to go um, uh, year before last, and um, the tag they kind of changed it this past year. And, and I still haven't figured out exactly cause I think now it's, it's, um, species specific. It was, you could shoot a muley buck or a coos buck with in, in the archery hunt in January, which is when the rut is happening. Okay. And I shot, I shot like a hundred mid 160 class, uh, muley, uh, with my bow, um, is what I ended up shooting. But I chased them little coos deer. And, man, they're like, I mean, I thought Louisiana whitetails were small. These things are tiny, bro. (laughs) But you're talking about an amazing animal. And uh, so if you ever get a chance, man, you got to go.
1: I'll have to check that out. I've got a guy who's going to be joining me on the podcast. Um, I've got to look. I think sometime in September but he runs an outfit actually down in Mexico and they do desert, they do desert, big horn mule deer and coos deer. And I'm like, I'm, I'm excited to pick his brain on it, but I've been, I've been watching videos, man. That's the problem is I hear these stories like, dude, you got to go try this. Then I jump (laughs) into the YouTube rabbit hole and I'm like, this is my number one passion. I've never done it (laughs) before, but I have to go and do it. And I get so excited about it. But at the end of the day, I'm like, man, there's only so much time. and that's really where like even starting the nomadic outdoors man and then taking over and rebranding the Western rookie, I'm like, this is the entire thing is about new opportunities like on sure. on each podcast. I just want yep. people to understand that there are so many different animals that you can get out there and hunt that, you might not know about like growing up in louisiana or in wisconsin like this is what we hunt we go out with the rifle for deer season that's it guys i can't believe it but we are one month away from season openers all across the country and if you're like me you're finalizing your gear list getting last minute preparations set in place and a few things that you cannot forget are a good rangefinder and a good set of binoculars or best of both worlds, the two combined into one. Vortex offers their line of Fury binoculars with range-finding capabilities and applied ballistics built right in. I'll have mine around my neck from the mountains of Utah to the Northwoods of Wisconsin in every trip in between. So if you're ready to get serious about your last minute prep to increase your odds this fall, check out what's new from Vortex at vortexoptics.com and head to your favorite Vortex dealer to make sure you're ready for everything Paul can throw at you. Well, right. guess what? There's this tiny, tiny little whitetail in southwest U.S. that you can go out and you can hunt them like you would uh mule deer in the mountains or an elk. Right. You know, like, it, even though it's the same you know, species, it's a whitetail deer, it's a subspecies of that. Like the way that you hunt. And that's really something that I've been wanting to get into is whitetail hunting as if I'm hunting out West because Mm. I have fallen in love with glassing, like sitting on a hillside with my binoculars or spotting scope is one of my favorite things on this planet. Now, just trying
2: to find the animals. And I understand that, man, because we spent a lot of time in the glass, um, especially antler hunting during shed season oh yeah we spent we spent a lot of time and where we elk hunt it's a little thicker we have openings but it's a little thicker we still spend quite a bit of time there but man when you go and you start hunting muleys and coos and glassing and it's man, it's amazing
1: see the the glassing sheds is has turned into a passion of mine now too like yeah a couple of years ago, it was my, I think it was my second season elk hunting. We went out and we were glassing up <clears throat> these elk. And I i kind of have an internal game that I play in my mind of like, what is the hardest feature on an elk to spot? Because there have been a couple elk that I've spotted because I saw the tiniest amount of leg underneath a branch. And I'm like, Ooh, I'm yeah. pretty sure that's an elk. And then all of a sudden I see it take a step. I'm like, guys, there's elk in there. And they're like, no, there's not. Well, then it takes <laughs> us 15 minutes to find any other feature on it. Um right. But we were basically doing that. I saw this elk leg move under a cedar branch. And all of a sudden we spot a, a shed and then another one and then another one. And this, this hillside was covered in mule deer and elk sheds. I mean, they were everywhere, but we didn't want to go down and gather the sheds and blow the spot up. And I was right. like, dang, man. So sitting up on a hillside, you could potentially just shed hunt with your eyes. And before even taking steps off the side-by-side trail, you might have 10 antlers already picked out. And then, <laughs> and now come to find out, I don't know if you've looked into this at all. I don't remember the brand, but there is a company that, uh, it's an optics company that has partnered with a mapping software and i knew that this would happen eventually like i was thinking about this idea 10 years ago but of course i'm not smart enough to make it into a product but you can take your range finder or your binoculars or whatever the optic is and when you click the button as you're looking at something wherever you're looking it drops a map on your mapping software on your phone so like oh, say you glass cool a shed that? You click on that shed and now you know exactly where it is. So if you have to drop down a canyon, go around this finger or through a saddle, you're still going to be within, you know, 10 yards of where that shed that shed was. And so, oh god, that's going to be a game changer. I guarantee it's going to be a game changer for finding those sheds that are all the
2: way across the canyon. Oh, yeah. I mean, because we've, we've spotted some and you get over there and – Especially if you're by yourself, you know, your, your chances of actually finding it once you get over there are not that great. Yeah. Well, would I've be
1: amazing. We did that, uh, this last year, me and a couple buddies, I brought some friends from Missouri, uh, out to Colorado and we did this elk hunt. We did not have any success, totally new area. And we struggled. I mean, we found a monster bull a couple days before season. Didn't see another elk for like five days. But uh we we were out scouting a couple days before season, we had set up camp and I I pull out the binos and I'm just glassing the hillside. Well, I see a shed. And of course, we're in a valley, which it's always a terrible place to glass from because anything you see, you gotta go up for. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I glass this shed and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna just range find it. And so I've got I've got the uh Vortex range finding binoculars. I yeah. absolutely love them and swear by them, but I ranged that shed and then I knew right where I was standing. So once we actually hiked up to find the shed, I turned around and I was ranging the rock that I was at because then that was going to put me in a better position of actually finding that shed. And we did, we ended up finding it. It was a four point mule mule deer side. And uh, it was, I don't know, that, that type of thing is so exciting. We ended up finding like five
2: or six sheds that week while we were elk hunting bro that it is it's shed hunting is just as addicting to me as as actually elk hunting i mean it just it's amazing because some of these areas we go in and we find multiple years off of the same bull and it's so cool to see you know like how much they grow similarities you know how they change and um We actually, one of the things that we done on our our channel was we, we, we done a, uh, we called it the race to 500 and we challenged ourselves, me, my son and and, uh, Todd Wilson, his father-in-law to see if we could pick up 500 antlers in a season. Oh my gosh. And, and it's all documented on our, on our channel. We, uh, when we ended the year, we were at like 735. Oh my
1: gosh. Forget me coming elk hunting with you. I need to come (laughs) shed hunting with you. Man, you're
2: welcome. I am the world's
1: worst shed hunter. So like, if you guys even want to feel better about those numbers, just invite me along. Well, hey,
2: you're welcome.
1: I, I found my very first whitetail shed while looking for sheds this year. I'm like, I have I have looked and looked and looked and looked and looked for deer sheds all my life. And I mean, I don't go on big trips to do it, but like even just walking around the hunting property, I'm like, I know they've got to be in here somewhere. There's deer tracks all throughout the winter and early spring in here. Like mm-hmm. they should be dropping. Well, I could never find a shed to save my life. And then this year I had my buddy Brian come out and he's really big into whitetail shed hunting and we walked out and i finally found my first one i was so pumped but that's all awesome. out in colorado like i had mentioned glassing man that's a different level like you can it find is. shed anybody can find sheds if you spend enough time behind some binoculars or, or hiking around yep. and that's right I, i've just discovered that it's so crazy because the amount of animals i see in the woods in wisconsin far outnumbers the amount of animals i see Like if I were to go sit in a 40 acre woodlot in Colorado, but the amount of ground you can cover with your eyes instead of your feet far outweighs the amount of animals that are out there.
2: Exactly. Yeah. It's a different world for sure.
1: What, uh, what does it look like now? I mean, I know you had mentioned your seasons coming up once you moved out to Colorado. Did that just open your eyes to all the different hunting opportunities? Uh, Because I can imagine going out there for elk, you're like, man, this is going to be it. This is my go to from now on. But once you got out there and started hearing about these other types of things, is that's when you is that when you really started thinking about traveling or trying different places
2: to hunt? Yeah, you know, um, man, I think and and i pretty much all Southern guys that you talk to, you know. Um, and especially Louisiana. Louisiana is known as sportsman's paradise. So there's like no matter what time of the year it is, there's always there's either hunting, fishing, you know, there's something going on. Yeah. And so when I came out west, I knew that that I would have to kind of reorganize my my outdoor activities because Obviously, you know it's it's a whole different set of species that's available to hunt, but then um coming from Louisiana where archery season would start you know September around September twentieth, and we go all the way into late January, and then you come to the west where you have seasons that are only a few days long, I knew I would have to figure out you know, what could I do to be outdoors as much as I wanted to be? Yeah. And so, uh, I started, of course, I mean, my goodness, you start seeing all these giant mule deer and you automatically want to start (laughs) hunting them. And, (laughs) and I mean, we've got, we've literally people come to visit here and, and, you know, there's 200 inch deer in town and they're just (laughs) going crazy, you know? So, that obviously started started that, and um and I do have, by the way, I do have a mule deer buck tack for third season for this year nice. as well. But um, but then I started um I started meeting different guys, and um uh, like with the the bear hunting and the lion hunting, I got a buddy that has dogs, and uh, he was the state state um like the the predator guy for california for many many years and he moved to new mexico and so me and him are about three and a half hours away and so that's been a great opportunity you know for dog hunting there yeah but um and then as far as in arizona going over there and hunting uh the guy who is my antler buyer uh Roland bones uh antler broker he lives in arizona and he guides um Uh, I think he guys for premium hunts out of Arizona. And, um, so me and him became really good friends and over the past few years, you know, he's invited me over and he's the one that, that got me to come on that, uh, coos hunt. Okay. And so I've been very blessed, very fortunate to meet a lot of, you know, great fellow hunters and, and, uh, make some really great relationships
1: Man, that's cool. Uh, one thing I want to touch on, and as soon as you started saying this, I was like, man, I got to find out more about it. You said he's your antler buyer. Now, mm-hmm. I know that that's a big thing. Like People will go and find elk sheds or deer sheds or whatever, and they sell them. That's something that, one, in my mind, I'm like, okay, if I found 700, yeah, there I probably had a couple that I could get rid of you know, but like I just wanna <laughs> I wanna find just the sickest, gnarliest matching elk shed set on the planet. And I just want to have like I wanna be that guy who makes chandeliers and Christmas trees out of my uh out of my sheds. But out
2: of your sheds. <laughs> when, <laughs> yeah. when
1: you go to sell, I mean, what does that look like? So he's you're just doing this deal, you're like, hey, this is how many sheds I have. I'm guessing the payout is different whether they're you know chocolate brown or all chalky and crumbly or i don't even know if they'll buy them at that point but how does that work how did you figure out hey i can find sheds it's amazing i'll keep the ones that i really like and i'll sell the others or do you just sell all of them
2: so so i i keep the the ones that are special to me and and um after finding as many as we do every year you know you kind of you kind of narrow it down to something really special. Like okay. I've got a set of um, uh, two hundred and eight inch uh, muley sheds that I founds got kickered and you know all that crazy stuff. Um, but so here's the deal: it's a it's really antler buying is a really big deal over in uh, southwestern uh, Colorado, what most people refer to as the Four Corners. You know, New Mexico, Arizona, Utah, Colorado, yeah, and um. So actually, my son is 22. He just become a um uh, a buyer under Rolling Bones, and okay. so he's now he's now starting to do that. Um, but what happens is buyers throughout the state will go, uh, usually from around February. Uh, end of February to uh, the 1st of June, and they will go and literally set in towns uh, all throughout the Four Corners by an antler. And so I met, I met Roland Bones. Um, uh, his name is Trinity Walker. Uh, no Ken, but same last name as me. But I met him probably nine years ago now. And, uh, man, just established a great relationship with him. And, uh, you know, he told us that we, in this part of Colorado, we sell him more antlers than just about anybody. So we become pretty good friends pretty quickly. And, uh, yeah, so there's there's like a grading scale that they have uh, that you kind of mentioned. You know, so you're like this year, for instance, uh, uh, brown elk antlers, Uh, At the height of the season, was going for nineteen dollars a pound. Jeez. So if you just think, you know, your average elk antler, um, if it's if it's decent, it's going to be maybe seven pounds, seven and a half pounds. So, I mean, you're you're talking pretty decent money for one antler. Yeah, you you find a you (laughs) you find a giant brown that's going to go, you know, eight, nine, possibly even ten pounds you're talking about pretty good money. And then they just kind of grade down from there. I think uh, Hard White, which is, you know, year old, I think they were going at the height of the season. They were going for 12 or $13 a pound. And then it just kind of goes down from there. So um, there are guys, there are guys literally in the Four Corners area that during shed season, they almost live off of, The money they make from selling their antlers
1: yeah i could imagine i mean i i look at i mean you know during during the early part of the year after seasons have ended and before anything else opens up you start seeing shed hunting content all over social media and i'll get these videos of guys and they've got packs and packs (laughs) that they're carrying out of sheds and i'm like dude how in the world are you finding this many sheds but I'm assuming that, you know, just like whitetail that might winter in the same area, elk, they probably have their wintering range where they go and they hang out and they're all dropping sheds at the same time. So once you find one of those honey holes, it's probably easy the next year to go back and be like, all right, there's going to be a bunch in this general area. We just got to grid search it. Um, But yeah, seeing how many sheds that these guys pack out and they've got their pack frames completely loaded down by the time them and their... Five, six buddies come back. They've got an entire truck bed full just from one Mm. (laughs) weekend of shed hunting. I'm like, dude, sign me up for that. I am 100% (laughs) in. And I've heard, heard, I don't know what states this is legal in and what states it's not, or maybe there's no regulations on it at all. But I've heard of people that will go up and they'll sit up just like we would during uh the day to to scan for sheds or to glass for sheds they'll do that same thing with a thermal scope or thermal binoculars and those sheds will stick out like a sore thumb right at sunset Uh, because the rest of the ground is cooling down faster like the the antlers hold their heat longer and so they'll throw off a different heat signature and so that's a way that you can way easier find sheds like I said wow, I don't know that's cool. I don't know if there's even any regulations on it but somebody had mentioned that and I've never done it but I'm really curious what that would look like because I have seen uh deer and elk through thermals before like just right. glassing them for fun and it's pretty crazy you can see their antlers plain as day through thermals when they're out feeding
2: That's interesting
1: I I had not I had not heard of that Yeah so I mean obviously i'd look into it before you go out doing it but like yeah that could be a game changer you know you spend a little bit of money on a good pair of thermal uh binoculars and Mm -hmm. you go set up on a hillside and you might be able to roughly map out exactly where you're going to go and find sheds later the next day
2: that that'd be pretty cool yeah I'll, i'll have to look into that for sure
1: yeah and i mean with the math that you're talking about you'd only need like 10 good antlers and you'd pay for it right there
2: right (laughs) right well i actually so so my go-to my go-to binocular optics have always been vortex because i just love vortex and yeah to me they're and i'm not saying this i'm not sponsored by them or nothing like that i'd i'd love to be one day but i'm not but uh their customer service dude is amazing like we've had a couple times where where you know we've had a issue with binoculars or something. And they would overnight us a new pair. Yeah. And just, you know, so they're amazing. But one of the things that I had um done, my my antler buyer, he is a um he's like a, a sales rep for uh Sawarski. Okay. And uh that's always been a little bit out of my price range. Um uh, but But he kept going, man, for spotting, you know, long distances, you should get a pair. And so, and I told you we'd become really good friends. And so he goes, he goes, man, you sell me so much antler. He said, this, it will help me as well as you. He said, why don't, why don't you just um, trade me out antler for a brand new pair of Swarovski. And so I literally ended up getting a pair of 15 by 56 Swarovski binoculars, and they are amazing. I mean,
1: that's pretty crazy. (laughs) Like go out and shed hunt and
2: all of a sudden you get brand new binos for it. Yeah. I come home one day and he sent me a message. I'd been working and he sent me a message and said, those binoculars are on your table. I just opened your door and went in and put them on your table. (laughs) <laughs> and I got home and there's a brand new pair of like, uh, I think his price was $2,150 or something. <laughs> and so, yeah. So I traded them out with Adler. Gosh, that's
1: hilarious. Well, that's pretty amazing. I mean, the fact that, you know, people can make that kind of money off of, off of shed hunting, that's not something that I would have ever even considered Uh, in my life, but you better believe if I was a young dude without a family, I'd be out there shed hunting a lot. And now I'm actually pretty fortunate because, uh, like I had mentioned to you, when we first started chatting before the recording, uh, I'm, this is my first episode that I'm doing from our new motor home. So I'm all set up in here, but we're, we're about to hit the road. We've got three more days on Thursday. We're hitting the road full time. And so I'm hoping to convince my wife instead of being down at the beach in Florida this spring to be out West shed hunting.
2: <laughs> well, look, you should do that. And, and you should, uh, you should come and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll plan a trip. We could either hit, um, Colorado doesn't open till May 1st yeah. for shed hunting, but, but, um, New Mexico is open year round and Arizona is open year round. Nice. So we could, um, Man, anytime, just let me know. We'll, we'll do it.
1: Yeah. I'm going to have to do that. That sounds amazing. And maybe what I'll do just to secure my spot shed hunting is I'll tell my wife, you know, half the money I make off of selling the sheds you can take for Florida.
2: There you go, bro. Best,
1: best of both worlds. I don't <laughs> even care if I walk away with no money from the deal. I just want a couple cool sets of elk <laughs> antlers and, My mom, my mom actually, uh, she'll pick antlers up here and there. Like, obviously if she finds them, it's even better, but every now and then she'll go to like an estate sale or something up there in Wisconsin and she'll end up walking away with the whole box, box of deer antlers. And she bought a whole set of tools and now she makes full on deer antler rings. And I'm like, man, that's pretty cool. Like, that's a cool way to do it. Even if you sell somebody an antler, you keep a little chunk of it and make a ring. And then you remember, Hey, this is from, you know, such and such bull that I found last year, or you throw it into a knife handle or something.
2: That's that is pretty slick there. That's cool.
1: That, that was the other question I was going to ask. So your, your elk buyer or your antler buyer, what, Mm -hmm. what are they doing with all these elk antlers that they're able to pay so much money for? Is it decor? Is it furniture? Is it does it hold some type of medicinal
2: value? So, so, um, the, the market has changed a little bit over the last few years. Uh, now he still buys all grades. I mean, he'll buy it all the way till it's really chalky, you know, and, and crumbly kind of, but mostly now he's doing that just to help out all the guys supplying him with antler because he's not moving that, that chalky stuff it used to go overseas to japan and and places like that and they used it uh in medicine okay the the market for that over the last few years i think they started like japan started buying from austria or somewhere else and it's kind of slowed down so mostly his market now is furniture makers okay that's that's his biggest you know, his biggest market right now. And so um, he kind of sets himself a goal for, you know, how many pounds of antler he wants to take in for the season. And then, uh, you know, he's got all of his uh, furniture makers that he supplies. And um, like I was at his house, literally um, was doing some work on his house just a few days ago, Saturday, in fact. And he's probably still, I would say he's still got probably around ten thousand pounds that he's still got there waiting to be shipped. Jeez, <laughs> I know he's got he's got a set. Uh, he's got a set of elk antlers that he found himself. Because what started him in buying, he was a he was not only a guide but he loved shed hunting, and then he got into buying you know antlers but he's got a 390 set that he found himself. Oh my goodness.
1: <laughs> if I found a 390 set, I would not leave <laughs> from that spot the entire next season.
2: Yeah, yeah, and he's got he's got um um a couple of sets that he has bought from guys that are just over 400. Oh my goodness so well the nice
1: thing is so i actually worked for a company here in springfield before i ever moved out to colorado and they made all of the uh signage and a lot of the three-dimensional stuff even fake trees and stuff that go into bass pro shops and cabela's Mm -hmm. and one thing that they got into was form molding antlers and so they could they could make a perfect replica of an elk antler or a deer antler in basically this plastic foam mold deal where they they put this i don't even know what the product is basically this gelatin that hardens and then they just uh open it up put it back together and now they've got a spot where they can pour like this epoxy or hard plastic into it and create exact replicas of your elk or deer antler, and I'm like, man, that's a really cool way to go. Especially if you're spending all this time out there shed hunting, and you find these ones that are memorable, or like, hey, I want this shed, even though I want to sell it and make money off of it. Well, now it could be basically best of both worlds. You could sell it and have a form made out of it, so that you can you can hold on to it for the
2: future. That's amazing. Yeah, we we've actually got a guy out out here in the west that's that's gotten pretty popular doing that. I think he's uh uh on Instagram like Trapper McKay, but he he is um my, my antler buyer um has had a couple of mounts done. Uh you know where he got replicas. Yeah. Uh and they turned out amazing.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. I remember the uh we had a finished paint section of that company. And it was just several like very, very amazing artists that would sit in there and airbrush them. I mean, they'd airbrush every little detail into those antlers to where I kid you not, there were times where I would hold two antlers side by side and they'd ask me which one was the real one and which one was the fake one. And I could not tell between the two. Wow, that's talent. Oh, yeah, it was it was unbelievable. But then now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, okay, I wonder how much a replica antler actually is you know if (laughs) you might end up being better off just not selling the antler and holding on to it than paying for a replica to be made and i'm sure eventually there's going to be the 3d printed models all you have to do is send in a picture and they can probably reproduce it
2: for you right right yeah yeah you know i think that's probably one of the things i've learned and and uh over the last few years shed hunting is you know what to look for. Like, okay, this is something so special that I just need to keep it. It's not worth, you know, the money I would make yeah. to sell it. And I, I did, I did, um, uh, several, several years ago. I think I found that two hundred eight set like four or five years ago. And uh, my antler buyer, he collects anything over two hundred inches uh, muley wise. He, he's a collector as well. And so he has this big collection, Damn. and as soon as he saw this this buck um, that I'd found, he's like, "Oh my gosh, I gotta have it!" And so he ended up giving giving me five hundred and fifty dollars for that set. Jeez. And <laughs> and uh, he told me, he said, "Look, I want that set, uh, and if you ever decide you just have to have it back, you can have it back for the same." You know the same Oh, wow, that's cool and so and so he kept it for about three years and uh i got it back from him here a little while back
1: <laughs> see I, I feel like now the now what you have to do is you just need to go around to all the deer farms and the elk farms and all these wild game farms all over the place and be like hey listen i'll pay you I'll pay you for matching (laughs) sets only. They've got to be over 200. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There, there was a, uh, it was a TikTok or an Instagram video or something. And it was, it was so funny because these guys would go out all the time. I mean, they'd go shed hunt together every year. They do multiple trips. Well, one of them ended up finding uh, a place like that. And he bought, this giant side and he's like i'm gonna take this out and i'm gonna hide it right where i know my buddy's looking and he wrote like his initials on the on the pedicle or something like that like something to where he could actually tell him like dude i was just messing with you and so he did his buddy was almost in tears because he went and found like the (laughs) biggest shed of his life he's losing his mind and then and the guy filming is just laughing the entire time and he's like dude what are you laughing about what are you laughing about this is insane and he's like look at the base of it and i i thought the guy was going to kill him i thought he was just gonna like <laughs> stab him with that's, the antler.
2: that's just wrong man.
1: oh yeah that's i mean that's like that's like me and my buddies we'll be duck hunting and if it's slow and we're not seeing much all of a sudden one guy will be like hey, right here right here and then we'll be like what and he's like oh, i'm just kidding I'm like, dude, you oh. can't do that. Like there's certain <laughs> lines that you just don't cross as a hunter.
2: <laughs> oh my, that's great, man. That's well, great. Steven,
1: I can't believe this. I feel like I could talk to you for hours. We're already at an hour and I want to make sure uh, that I'm respectful of your time, but I want to thank you for hopping on. And I think we're going to have many more conversations. Hopefully we can get to get together in the future, do some hunting or shed hunting or just something. Um, cause I can tell
2: you're, you're a good dude. Um, well, but, man, I appreciate it. And you're, uh, you're more than welcome. I wasn't just saying that you're, uh, I'd love to have you out. Um, and we'll, we'll just stay in touch and love to make that happen.
1: Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, I want to give you an opportunity to share with the listeners where they can find you, where they can follow along social media, YouTube, whatever.
2: Okay, so you can find us on YouTube at Ramsack Nation. That's R A M S A C K Nation uh, on YouTube. A lot of cool hunts on there. Uh, I think the biggest bull on the channel is a 330 bull that we killed, uh, Todd Wilson killed at his place. But whitetail, turkey, hog hunting with dogs, a lot of fun stuff, a lot of shed hunting on there. And then uh, social media, um, Ramsack Nation on facebook and on instagram and uh steven curb walker on facebook and on instagram as well awesome well
1: man thank you so much for real thanks again for hopping on and i will be checking out a lot of those videos i want to see the uh 700 shed season
2: that is (laughs) unbelievable (laughs) well thank you dan i really appreciate uh, the opportunity and it it was uh it was a pleasure to talk to you.
1: absolutely. And that is gonna wrap it up for today's show. Man, I am super excited about hunting after talking with Stephen, after hearing about his Western hunting experiences. And I wanna get out and shed hunt, holy cow. The amount of money that people can make shed hunting. Like, I would go and do that for fun. I would pay to be put in a good area for shed hunting. But then to think you can actually make money doing it too is crazy. But I think I'm gonna take him up on some shed hunting as well as some archery elk hunting here in the near future. So I'm looking forward to all of that. Hopefully you guys are finalizing your packs. You're getting everything loaded up, maybe getting the last minute things at the store that you need for your Western hunts. Um, I know they're kicking off, and I'm already seeing people posting pictures, and all of the videos from scouting or trail camera pictures like It's upon us, so get ready, get fired up. If you're not already, you should be, especially after listening to that episode. But until next time, get out there and chase new adventure.